Sathanun as your people. Thank you for the wonders of amplification. Uh, we do pray, Father, that you would help us uh, as we come to your word, uh, that you would help me to be faithful and clear in explaining it and applying it. Uh, you give us all ears to hear, hearts that are uh, ready to embrace and trust your word uh, and uh, put it into practice, we pray. Amen. Uh, so as we uh, get going today, I just wanted to recap a little bit where we've come from the past few weeks uh, as we've looked at Matthew's Gospel. Uh, what we've seen in this uh, section of Matthew's Gospel, we're looking at Matthew chapters 11 to uh, 13, uh, is first of all that Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Uh, so if, you, if you've got your actual Bible open, uh, which you might find useful, uh, you might see there in chapter 12 verse 15 that the crowds were really were flocking to Jesus. Jesus uh, is becoming a bit of a celebrity, words getting around, that he has the power to heal people and cleanse people and restore people. Uh, so Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Massive crowds are coming to him. Uh, so much so that we saw last week, if you cast your eyes down to chapter 12 verse 23, uh, that the crowds are even starting to contemplate the thought that Jesus might actually be God's king, the the Messiah, the the promised one who was going to come uh, and establish God's kingdom. So Jesus, uh, on the one hand, is at the height of his popularity, uh, while on the other hand, he's at the height of his opposition. You remember the Pharisees have launched this smear campaign against Jesus, uh, centering around this uh, one central lie. Uh, the lie that we heard all about last week, the lie that, yes, Jesus is powerful, no one can deny that, uh, but his power doesn't come from God, but from Satan. It doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, but from evil spirits. And you'll see down uh, back in chapter 12, verse 14, that uh, in the end, the Pharisees hope uh, via this blatant lie to destroy Jesus. Their plan is to kill Jesus. So this is the scene, right? Jesus at the height of his popularity on the one hand, at the height of opposition on the other hand, and in the midst of that kind of turmoil, uh, Jesus is calling on people, he's challenging people to make a decision about him, to nail their colours to the mast and say, this is what I think about who Jesus is. So Jesus said, said, last week, you can't sit on the fence with me. You remember that verse, whoever, uh, if you're not actively for me, you're against me. Jesus wants people to count the cost of being committed to him. He wants people to commit to him, but he wants them to count the cost of that. So if you've got your Bible open, you might want to flip back to Matthew chapter 10. Then there's a whole series of verses. Jesus says, commit to me. Don't sit on the fence, really do commit to me. But in Matthew 10, for example, in verse 22, Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. A couple of verses later, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. And note this, in light of chapter 12, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, right, demonic, satanic, right, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Down in verses 38 and 39, chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is the scene, Matthew chapters 10 to 13. 
great popularity on the one hand for Jesus, great opposition on the other hand, and in the middle, Jesus saying, you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision about me. You're either with me or you're against me. And it's in that context that we come to today's passage, because really the big idea in today's today's passage, you can see it, it's the title of my sermon, uh, the big idea is commit to the truth. Commit to the truth. The truth that is found in knowing and following Jesus. Commit to that truth wherever it leads you, whatever the cost, because it's the only way to find life both now and forever. That's the big idea. Commit to the truth. And under the, uh, that big idea, we're going to see two uh, kind of main points. You can see them in your sermon outline. Uh, the first is that, uh, that rejecting the truth leads to destruction. Uh, and the second is that obeying the truth leads to life. Right? Rejecting the truth leads to destruction. Obeying the truth leads to life. Very simple, two-point sermon. Uh, so hopefully you can get your head around that. Let's, let's first look uh, at verses 38 to 45. Uh, this is where we see how rejecting the truth leads to destruction. Uh, look at verse 35. I'll read that out. Uh, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, uh, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And remember, throughout chapter 12, we've been uh, seeing from these Pharisees that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, has been progressively escalating. We know that they're not only refusing to believe in Jesus, but they're actually plotting to kill him. We saw that uh, back in verse 14. And now it seems that as a part of that plot, uh, the Pharisees have gone perhaps to a local synagogue. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but they've called in these reinforcements, these teachers of the law. Uh, And this is the first time we've heard of these teachers of the law, but now it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. uh, And they're coming to Jesus. And on the surface in verse 38, they, they seem to relate to Jesus with great respect, don't they? Teacher, rabbi, it's a, term of, it's a term of real respect. They seem to start well. But of course, it's an absolute sham. It's a sham. These are the teachers who, uh, whose deepest desire is to get rid of Jesus. And so their request for a sign in verse 38 is also a sham. Right? These leaders have seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles. They have all the evidence they need to believe in him. They're just refusing to do that. They're choosing not to. They've made that clear publicly by labelling all the miracles Jesus has done as evidence of satanic work, right? like you know, evil spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. And they've done that privately by starting this plot to kill Jesus. So in reality, their request for a sign is not a sign of faith at all. It's an insult to Jesus. Jesus has been doing all these miracles, they'd have ever chance to believe in him, uh, and yet these leaders come to Jesus demanding that on the spot he put on some sort of supernatural show for them. You know where we have uh, kind of uh, movies on demand or TV shows on demand, where we're not great with delayed gratification, sport on demand, we've got everything on demand. Imagine if you could have miracles on demand. Right? That's, what, that's what these Jewish leaders want. So you get the picture. Not only are they refusing to obey Jesus' demands as God's king, they want Jesus to obey their demands. We've got some demands for you, Jesus. Do a miracle for us. Put on a show. And Jesus won't have a bar of it. Right? He knows that these leaders are already committed to rejecting him, no matter what he does. So in the rest of this section, Jesus points out how their rejection of him and the truth 
found in knowing him uh, will, lead, will be destructive for them. It will lead to destruction. Look, in verse 39, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, I wouldn't recommend leading with that if your friend at uh, work uh, kind of says to you, oh, give, give me a sign, all right, that Jesus do too. He says, are you wicked and adulterous person? It's probably not kind of evangelism 101, uh, but there you go, Jesus uh, goes with it here. Calling them wicked because, remember last week, he talked about the wickedness of their hearts, the evil in their hearts. And here he's saying that their words and deeds show that their hearts are wicked. In exhibit A, being here they are, feigning some sort of interest in Jesus, while deep down all they want to do is kill him. Oh, that's wicked. Hypocrisy. And Jesus calls them adulterous, not because they're all physical adulterers, but because they're spiritually adulterous. Right, throughout the Bible, and in particular in the Old Testament, that's relevant here, uh, God describes the relationship uh, between him and his people as a marriage. And you might know, if you've read the Old Testament, that God's people weren't always faithful in that marriage. Like God called them to, to give the love of their hearts kind of exclusively to him, to, to be monogamous, uh, but they cheated on God. Like they, they worshipped the idols of the nations. Uh, so God described them in several places uh, as an adulterous wife. Particularly if you read prophets that were, happened just before uh, God's people were, God sent his people into exile in Babylon. Prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this whole, whole idea of God's people being an adulterous wife is all through those books. In that generation just before the exile, what's Jesus saying? He's saying this generation, right, led by these Jewish leaders, is just like them. Just like them. Sure, they, they might claim to be loving God, but the truth is, they love their power and their reputation and their rules and their traditions. They love all those things a whole lot more than they love God. And so spiritually speaking, that they're committing adultery. They're cheating on God. And you can imagine that it's destructive for any relationship to cheat on the person that you're supposed to love. But imagine how destructive it would be to cheat on the creator of the universe. That's going to cause some damage. Which is really what Jesus reiterates in verses 39 to 42. Right? It's going to cause damage, I should say. It's going to cause some damage because it, it means God is angry with you. God's going to judge you. And, that, and that's the connection to verses 39 to 42, uh, where we see this picture of judgment. Right? And Jesus calls forth two witnesses uh, against these Jewish leaders and the whole, uh, the whole generation that they lead. Uh, notice that they're two non-Jewish witnesses. Not the, not the people you'd expect, they're Gentiles. Right, the, the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. So let's read verse 39. Verse 39, Jesus says, uh, paraphrasing a little, no sign will be given to this generation uh, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So you notice Jesus' point. He's talking to these leaders. They know the Old Testament well. They know the story of Jonah. And he's saying to them, if you guys really understood the book of Jonah, you wouldn't be coming to me asking for a sign. For goodness sake, the, the book of Jonah would be enough. Plenty of evidence in the book of Jonah that you ought to believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying. But in, in verse 40 he says, uh, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now just note there, like it's not 
far and away the, the, the main point of this passage, but uh, it's interesting to note that Jesus treats the story of Jonah as if it's history. So there, it's historically true. It's not a, a myth or a nice fairy tale that you might have heard in Sunday school, but Jesus thinks it's just as historically true that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish as it's historically true that he's going to spend three days and three nights in the tomb, in the heart of the earth. Both are historically true events in history. Jesus treats the story of Jonah as history. Uh, what is that story? The story is that God told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh uh, to warn them of his judgment, to call on them to repent. Uh, Jonah disobeyed God's call. Why? Because he hated the Ninevites. Right? He didn't want them to heed God's warning and repent and, uh, and escape his judgment. So Jonah jumps on a ship and goes in the completely opposite direction. Uh, God whips up a storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. Uh, God sends the huge fish who swallows Jonah up. Uh, and eventually, uh, after three days and three nights, he's spat out on the coast near Nineveh. Uh, Jonah uh, somewhat learns his lesson. Uh, reluctantly goes through the city of Nineveh, proclaiming the message that God has given him, urging the people to repent. And of course the Ninevites do repent. They repent at Jonah's ministry. Uh, So in Matthew 12, look at verse 41. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. How shocking for this this predominantly Jewish, like Jewish leaders, Jewish crowd, how shocking for them uh, that at the judgment, Jesus says that the men of Nineveh, this notoriously wicked Gentile city, those men will stand up and condemn this whole generation of Jewish people. And that's not necessarily to say that they'll literally stand up and judge them. It's to say that their response to Jonah's ministry, his message, right, their wholehearted repentance, right, that response will condemn this whole generation. This generation which should have responded in repentance to Jesus' ministry. Why? Because Jesus is greater than Jonah. What Jesus is doing as God's king and bringing about God's kingdom, that is greater than Jonah. Just think about the the comparison. There's obviously an analogy. Jesus is making that. But he's saying that I'm much greater than Jonah. He's greater because Jonah was unwillingly in the belly of that fish, wasn't he? Just kind of involuntarily kind of swallowed by a fish. Unwilling. And he was there because of his own disobedience and sin. And then he was kind of unwillingly spat out on the beach near Nineveh. He had no power over that. He was just spat out near Nineveh. In contrast, Jesus, uh, when, after Jesus dies on the cross, uh, he'll be willingly in the heart of the earth, willingly in that tomb, doing exactly what his father has called him to. And he won't be doing that because of his own sins and disobedience, but because of our sins, greater than Jonah. And then he'll willingly take up his life again. Remember John 15. No one takes my life from me, and I will take up my life again. Jesus will be raised from the dead to rule as God's king. Jesus is greater than Jonah. So what an indictment on this generation. How is it possible, Jesus is saying, that the the notoriously wicked Gentiles in the city of Nineveh, that they could repent at the humble message of Jonah, 
And yet you guys are so hard-hearted that you won't repent at my ministry as the one that is greater than Jonah. And now just before we move on, uh, there are some people who would uh, read this uh, verse uh, and they'd really uh, kind of get their knickers in a bit of a twist. You know, like they'd say uh, here... uh, let me do what they'd say is, look, uh, Jesus says that he's going to be in the tomb for three days and three nights. Right, and we're coming up to Easter, you know, the Easter story, like Jesus dies on Good Friday, raised again on, uh, on Sunday. If you do the maths, maybe it's mid-afternoon on Friday to early Sunday morning. It's nowhere near 72 hours. Is it three days and three nights? So that, we, we add that up, we think that's 72 hours. This is nowhere near 72 hours. Maybe 36, maybe 48 hours, I don't know. But it falls well short. Uh, therefore, Jesus is unreliable. Uh, you can't trust the Bible. There's no point being a Christian. Right? That's the, the chain of thought. And of course, that's true. Jesus uh, may not have been, uh, I mean, if you add up 72 hours, then it appears that Jesus was not in the grave for 72 hours. And that is a bit hard for our kind of modern, uh, somewhat rationalistic minds to, to get our heads around. And the truth is uh, that first century Jews just didn't think about time like that. First of all, they didn't all have a clock, so that influences things a little bit. They weren't kind of punching out every minute. So there's a kind of different cultural thing going on there. But they also thought uh, that any part of any day could be counted as if it was a full day. That's just kind of how they operated. So I think all this is saying here is that three days and three nights, I think all it means is that, is that Jesus was in the tomb for parts of three different days, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Now, there are other explanations for that. If you get really excited, you can uh, look them up on the, on the net. But I, I think that's probably the most balanced uh, response uh, to that objection that people might have, or perhaps you have. Uh, If you're not satisfied with that, of course, uh, you still shouldn't use it as a reason to not become a Christian, to reject Jesus. Because what we do know is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buried in a tomb, and then there was an empty tomb because he was raised from the dead. Whether he was in the tomb for 36 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours seems to be a bit of a moot point. The fact is that he's the only person ever to be raised from the dead, and so maybe you should have uh, listened to him. That's the fact. And that, of course, is the ultimate sign that Jesus is God's king, the one who died for our sins, the one who was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but then was raised from the dead, giving us all the evidence we need to believe in him. So in verse 42, Jesus calls his second witness. You see there, it's the queen of the south, but you might have more commonly heard the queen of Sheba. And later on, you might, you might want to read uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, where we see that the Queen of Sheba uh, was so eager to come and hear Solomon's w- uh, wisdom, King Solomon's wisdom, uh, that she travelled from the ends of the earth. Or she travelled a really long way, really eager to hear Solomon's wisdom. And so, so surely this generation would be eager to hear Jesus' wisdom, to respect his wisdom, to trust his wisdom to put his wisdom into practice. You'd think so, but no. They're rejecting Jesus. So Jesus says, on the day of judgment, the Queen of Sheba will rise up to condemn them. And in verses 43 to 45, Jesus tells this story, which 
But to be frank, I have only feel like I've come to understand it this week. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? This story in verses 43 to 45. But uh, I think what Jesus is doing here is that he's driving home to this whole generation, and particularly to these leaders, uh, just how vulnerable and dangerous a position they're in spiritually. So let me read the verses from verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places uh, seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So first in verse 43, you you see that we've got this impure spirit that's leaving a person. And in the context, it's probably worth noting uh, that uh, impure spirits are also often called evil spirits. I say that's worth noting because you remember last week, back in verse 22, Jesus cast out the, 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 the demons out of that demon-possessed man. Evil spirits were cast out, impure spirits, same deal, I think. Well, we don't know why this spirit was in the person in the first place, why uh, it decided to leave the person, or really why it was seeking rest. For goodness sake, I didn't realise it was such hard work being an evil spirit, but apparently you need to change homes every so often. Uh, just you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, we don't know the answers to all of those questions, but what we do know in verse 44 uh, is that when the spirit can't find another place to rest, or there's no other homes available, uh, it says, well, I think I'll go back to my old home. And when it goes back to its wonderful delight, it discovers that not only is its old home unoccupied, but it's had an incredible clean-up job. This is amazing. This is the perfect place to rest. And so the spirit gets on the phone to his friends. So I found the most amazing share house. You guys should all come over. Seven spirits, even more wicked than it. And it's kind of, you know, this incredibly evil and wicked Life, person, right? The condition of that person is even worse than it was before. And pretty confrontingly, Jesus says that's what it's going to be like for this wicked generation. How does all this fit together? Oh, well, this is where I, I think in verse 22, you remember, Jesus cast those demons out of the demon-possessed man. Cast out evil spirits going out of someone's life. Then in verses 25 to 29, he refuted the Pharisees' lie that he'd done that by the power of an evil spirit. Right? And then he taught the truth, that he'd done it by the power of God's Holy Spirit. But the people he's speaking to have rejected that. Remember, Jesus said, you blaspheme against the Spirit, labelling the work of God's Holy Spirit as the work of an evil spirit. So Jesus is saying, you guys, spiritually speaking, are incredibly vulnerable in a very dangerous position. Why? Because you've been confronted with Jesus' power, his power which is actually able to to cleanse people's wicked hearts, his power which is clearly able, he's just shown that, his power is clearly able to, to liberate people from evil. They've been confronted with that power, but they've rejected it. And here Jesus says they've rejected it in favour of a superficial clean-up job. This is how the Pharisees think, how this generation's thinking. A bit of morality here, a few rules over there, a couple of traditions over here, a few extra spiritual disciplines. I'm cleaning up my life. 
the reality is that even though they might have cleaned themselves up on the outside, Jesus says their hearts are empty. They are unoccupied. They've rejected Jesus and the power of his spirit. That Jesus promised, I'll come and live in you. I'll reside in your home and completely transform your life. But these guys are empty. So the heart, right, the source of all that evil, we heard about that last week, every evil desire and word and deed, their hearts are prime real estate for spiritual evil, Jesus says. They'll end up worse than they ever were. And maybe you've seen this in someone else's life or, or, or maybe you've experienced it in your own life. You know, you come to that moment in your life, you, maybe you've been coming to church or reading the Bible or listening to stuff online, whatever you've been doing, uh, and you just, you're really convicted of your sin. You're very convinced that you must do something to clean up your life, to put things straight. But instead of humbly admitting that the root of your sin is in your own heart, that you, that you can't change your own heart, instead of humbly trusting in the Lord Jesus and, and asking him to, to cleanse your heart and come and live in your heart by the power of your spirit that you might actually live in ways that please God, instead of doing all that, you decide to give yourself a clean-up job, you see. You set some goals, you, you write some rules, you do your best uh, to be a good and moral and respectable person because you just do really want to change and it's all on you, at least that's what you think. Incidentally, I was going to say this last week, but I don't know how many people here have even heard of Jordan Peterson or if you're sympathetic to Jordan Peterson. But this is why, I, I, I can see why some people might be sympathetic to him, but this is why his message is so dangerous. Because one of his first rules, isn't it? Put your own house in order. Who's going to do that? You are. You're the boss of your life incredibly unchristian. Right? Jesus says that's the, that's the lie of the Pharisees. We'll put our own lives in order. You're empty. No real power to change, Jesus would say. Your life is unoccupied. Dangerous. Anyway, that was a big tangent. But, right? that, but you, you've been in this place. You're convicted of sin and you say, I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to do all that by myself. I want to be respectable and good and moral. And of course, any change you do experience is both superficial and short-lived, isn't it? And now you're in a worse condition than you were before. right? Because not only are you full of evil, but you've piled on guilt and shame because you haven't been able to change anything. You're even more vulnerable to evil than you were before. In your pride... You've thought that you would have been able to clean up your life by yourself, that you didn't need Jesus, which is what Jordan Peterson would say. Right? Jesus is warning this generation of Jewish people uh, that, that that's what they're like, exactly what they're like. They've heard the truth about him, but they've rejected it. They've got a taste for it, but they haven't swallowed it into their life. They've been offered it, but they've haven't accepted it. Rejecting the truth leads to destruction. That's the picture in these verses. Now some of you at that point uh, might even just object to the idea of me talking about truth at all. You have to ask yourself, well, what exactly do I think about this idea of truth? Well, I think on a physical level, uh, all of us agree that there are some things that are true and some things that are false. So for example, uh, if I was going for a run, uh, this has never happened before, but <laughs> hypothetically, if I was going for a run and you saw uh, that there was a large green bin in my path, 
And uh, I, you, you see that clearly, right? The, the bin is actually there, but because of my vision impairment, I am utterly, honestly convinced that the bin isn't there. Right? Now, of course, the bin is there, and sooner or later I'll discover that the bin is there because in the physical realm, some things are true and some things are false. And the fact is that the bin is there. I think we're all okay with that in the physical world. Some things are true and some things are false. And I think most people are happy to extend that to moral things. But in the moral realm, I think most of us would agree uh, that it's more healthy on balance for human beings uh, to be generous rather than greedy, to be hardworking rather than lazy, to be selfless rather than selfish. I think, I'm sure there are exceptions, you know, someone will put their hand up and go, what about that... You know, that tribe in deepest, darkest Africa that thinks selfishness is a virtue. You know, okay, I'm sure there's exceptions. But in general, I think these are commonly accepted truths. It's commonly accepted that if you're a greedy and lazy and selfish person, in the end, that will be destructive for you. They may not think about that in spiritual terms, but even emotionally. Or you've got to get rid of that baggage. But mostly people think that those things are true. And what Christianity is doing is extending what most of us are okay with in the physical and moral realm to the spiritual realm. Saying, when it comes to spiritual things, there are some things that are just true. They're facts. And the fact is that Jesus is God's king. That's the fact. The fact is that if you don't, uh, that you live, if you don't commit to him, if you live out of step with him, out of tune with him, then you're living out of tune with the God who made the universe, the God who made you, and that is destructive for you both now and forever. Those are the facts. Now, our generation doesn't like facts, particularly when it comes to spiritual things. Like we're the Facebook generation, we like likes. We like preferences. We're not into facts. That's not how Christianity works. Like We're okay with facts physically, we're okay with facts morally. Christianity is okay with facts spiritually. So the fact is that rejecting Jesus and the truth found in knowing him is destructive. It leads to destruction. Of course, the the reverse is also true. If you commit to Jesus and the truth found in knowing him, uh, it leads to life, blessing, joy, peace, wonderful, right? That's what we see in the end of the passage, verses 46 to 50. Uh, It's interesting there, uh, you see in verses 46 and 47, we're told twice uh, who's on the outside? It's uh, Jesus' mother and brothers, right? His physical family. And on the inside are the crowds of people who are listening to him. That's just interesting because it's usually the opposite in our houses, isn't it? We, we keep the kind of big bad crowds outside and it's our family on the inside. That's interesting. But anyway, Matthew uh, doesn't tell us a lot uh, about why Jesus' uh, family's outside wanting to talk to him. Uh, but I think actually Mark's account of this story uh, gives us a f- couple of clues. Uh, the first is that Mark says Jesus' family are outside calling for him. Now, in Mark's gospel, they might not seem, you know, oh, so what, calling, right? But in Mark's gospel, every time someone's calling for Jesus, uh, they're doing that because they want to get control of him. Uh, and that's what's going on here, right? In the context in Mark, uh, it's clear that Jesus' family are calling him because they're embarrassed about him, right? Imagine one of your siblings going around claiming that they were the Messiah. It's a bit embarrassing for the family. Let's get him away from the crowd so he can't do any more damage uh, and kind of talk some sense into him. That's how his family were thinking. And Mark also tells us that Jesus' family are looking for him. Once again, every time in Mark's Gospel, people looking for Jesus, the exact word, 
Uh, They're looking for him because they want to suppress him or get control of him. In that sense, Jesus' family here aren't that different to the Pharisees. Both of them wanting to control Jesus or squash Jesus in some way. So in verse 48, Jesus says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? I'm sure those people outside are members of my physical family. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus loves his family. But what's more important, Jesus says, are who are the members of my spiritual family? So once again, this theme's coming through, that Jesus is calling on people uh, to make a decision about him. Well, he wants to kind of shake up the people who uh, would assume that they're members of his family. And he wants to assure the people uh, who might assume that they could never be a member of his family. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's kind of shaking up the whole concept of family. And then in verses 49 and 50, uh, Jesus points to his disciples, those who've committed to him and that they're listening to him. Uh, and he says there, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, this really flips our ideas of family and our priorities on, on their head. We don't have time to go into that. But oh, Jesus is saying that, uh, that on the one hand, he's warning his physical family that, well, they're not automatically members of the most important family, his spiritual family, simply because they're related by blood. Right? There's a real priority here on those who are actually committed to Jesus, who are listening to his truth. Right? He declares that those who listen to him and seek to do his Father's will, those people are members of his spiritual family, even if they're not related to him by blood. So what does it mean to do the Father's will? seems pretty important. You want to be in Jesus' family? You have to do the Father's will. And we're going to answer that in, in a bunch of different ways from different parts in the New Testament. Uh, but I think, in particular, John chapter 6, verse 40 is helpful. John chapter 6, verse 40. Uh, Jesus says there, John 6, verse 40, uh, My Father's will, ding, 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 My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. That's the picture. It's Jesus' Father's will, his his firm desire uh, that we would not reject Jesus as his King, a path that leads to destruction. We've seen that. We wouldn't do that. It's his Father's will that we would commit to Jesus as his King. A path that leads to eternal life, Jesus says. Life now and and life forever. So let me urge you to do that today, simply. Commit to the truth. Recommit to the truth. Commit to the truth that's found in knowing and following the Lord Jesus. Do that whatever the cost. Do that wherever it leads you in life. Not not because it'll be better necessarily, all, you know, peaches and cream, right? But because in the end, you know that rejecting the truth leads to destruction and obeying the truth leads to life. Commit to the truth. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We're mindful that uh, as we see uh, Jesus' popularity increasing and the conflict and hostility increasing as well, we hear the words of our Lord Jesus are calling us to commit to him, warning us that rejecting the truth that's found in knowing him will lead to destruction now and forever. 
and, and accepting and obeying and, and trusting the truth that's found in, in knowing and following him will lead to life both now and forever. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet committed to the truth found in the Lord Jesus and I pray that they would do that today, that they would find life in knowing him, that they would join his family. And Father, I pray for all of uh, us here who are already members of, of Christ's family. I pray that you would strengthen our desire to trust him and follow him, uh, to, to do his will uh, wherever it leads and whatever the cost. For the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.